0: remember last time, it's been a little bit here because we had three Sundays with um, Howard going through the book of Malachi, but uh, back now into the church history, and if you remember last time we looked at the Arian heresy and the Council of Nicaea, and if you remember we looked at Arius and who he was and the false doctrine that he started teaching, and he was teaching that there was a time when the sun was not he taught that the sun was an exalted creature he he taught that the sun was created and we talked about then alexander who was the bishop of the church in alexandria who opposed arius and rightly so and there was a council that uh, condemned him in his teaching but he continued to spread his teaching throughout the east and then we talked about how constantine the emperor saw that there was this controversy, this conflict going on. He wanted unity in the churches. And so he convened the Council of Nicaea, and the bishops gathered there, and they condemned Arius, and they condemned his teaching. And we talked also about a lot of the false things that are said today about the Council of Nicaea, and I can't go through all that now. There's a lot of detail given, but just to remind you, Constantine had nothing to do with the outcome of that council And at the same time, the Council of Nicaea had absolutely nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. A lot of people say that they decided at the Council of Nicaea what would be in the Bible and what would not be in the Bible. None of that is true. The Council had absolutely nothing to do with that subject. So we talked about that last time. Now, what we want to do this time is talk about someone named Athanasius. You can move on to the next one up there. And we talked a little bit about him last time. Athanasius was at the council, but he was not one of the bishops. He was a deacon. He was actually the assistant to Alexander. So you can move on to the next one. We're going to go then to lesson 12, and we're going to look at Athanasius and the aftermath of Nicaea, because it's not like the Council of Nicaea just settled all these issues. There was a lot of things that happened afterward that are really important. But we want to, while thinking about these things, we want to talk about Athanasius about who he was and about his ministry. You can click on to the next one. Oh, looks like there's a problem up there. Brother Keith, he is on it. Look at that. Oh, that's that thing I think that pops up a lot of times when we're doing this. Okay. Okay, you can click on to the next one up there. Okay, so we're looking at Athanasius. Now, we do not know the exact year of Athanasius' birth. It's around 296. He would have been a young child during the persecution under the emperor Diocletian and under the persecution of Galerius. And Remember, previous lessons we talked about those individuals. But the persecution at that time, later 3rd century, early 4th century, very hard persecution in the Roman Empire, and it was very difficult in Egypt where Athanasius grew up. So most likely, I mean, growing up in that atmosphere, that probably uh, gave him a great impression of uh, of what life was like as a Christian. He would have been a teenager, though, when the persecution ended, ended under the Emperor Constantine. Some have written that Alexander, the bishop in the church at Alexandria, saw out the window athanasius as a young boy playing with some of his friends on a beach and they were pretending to baptize each other and so alexander had a little bit of concern he was worried that they were treating baptism lightly so he went outside and called the boys and he questioned them and as he questioned them he realized that young athanasius had a really good theological understanding of not only baptism but of other things as well so alexander took care of athanasius's education and he personally taught him the Bible, and eventually Athanasius became an assistant to Alexander. Now, the Council of Nicaea, as I mentioned last time, it took place in the year 325. That's one of the most important dates in all of church history, 325 A.D. And Athanasius was present as a deacon and as an assistant to Alexander. Now, Athanasius was made... Bishop of Alexandria, three years after the council of Nicaea. Alexander died, and Alexander wanted Athanasius to be the bishop after him. So in the year 328, Athanasius becomes the bishop of the church in Alexandria in the land of Egypt. Athanasius would have been about 30 years old when he became the bishop, and he was a very faithful bishop. He would visit the churches under his care. He would travel through the desert of Egypt and visit the churches. He actually was really good friends with Antony. Does anybody just raise your hand? Do you, anybody in here remember who Antony was? <laughs> Not, okay. Remember our lesson on monasticism? That was Howard's favorite lesson. You know, the Desert Fathers, Simon Stylites up on the pillar. Um, but Antony was one of those well-known uh, individuals, and he was about 50 years older than Athanasius, but they were very good friends, and they spent uh, time together. Athanasius, though, at the same time, he had many enemies. Many had never wanted him to be appointed as bishop, but the people in Alexandria, for the most part, did love him as the bishop. But let's talk about some of the difficulties that he faced. Number one, there was a meeting that was called at the city of Tyre in modern-day Lebanon where Athanasius was accused of killing a bishop by the name of Arsenius, and they said that they possessed one of the hands of Arsinius to prove that Alexander had, uh, that Athanasius had killed him. Well, during that time, Athanasius' friends searched out and found Arsenius alive and dragged him to the meeting, showing both of his hands and proving that Athanasius did not actually do this. So uh, different culture at the time, obviously. I mean, any of us would seem shocking to us that – Someone would accuse a bishop of killing another bishop. But nevertheless, that's what was going on. So, I mean, imagine this now. You're a bishop. You're young. And uh, you know a lot of people don't want you to be the bishop. And someone accuses you at a special meeting of killing another bishop. And they they set you up and falsely accuse you of that. So that would be definitely difficult. Second issue, Athanasius at this time sails in secret to Constantinople where the emperor Constantine was ruling at the time. Not long after his meeting with the emperor, Athanasius's enemies arrive and falsely accuse him of threatening to stop ships from going from Alexandria to Constantinople to haul wheat there. And that was important because almost all the wheat in Constantinople came from Alexandria. So that would have concerned Constantine. Well, Constantine seemed to lean towards believing Athanasius' enemies instead of Athanasius. So Athanasius warned that God would judge between them. And this angered Constantine greatly. So what Constantine did was he ordered Athanasius to be in exile in the city of Trier in modern-day Germany in 335. So after seven years of being the bishop, Athanasius is exiled, out, and he's not leading the church there in Alexandria. He does lead by epistle, but he is sent there to that area. Two years later, Constantine died in 337, and he divided the empire among his three sons. You can click onto the next one, and we'll just uh, look at these. These are the three sons. You have, first of all, Constantius. He ruled the longest between 337 and 361, so he ruled from Constantinople uh, and actually we'll go to that slide after I go through this but what's really important two things about Constantius Constantius was an Arian he believed the Arian heresy and since he ruled in the eastern part of the empire he ruled over Alexandria where Athanasius was supposed to be the bishop so that would have uh, some pretty important consequences Secondly, the second son, Constantine II, he ruled only 337 to 340, and he ruled all the way over in the west over what we would call today Germany, England, and Spain. And then in the middle was Constance. He would have ruled the area around Rome between 337 and 350. Now, Constantine II was in charge of the area that Trier was located in where Athanasius was exiled to. And he convinced his brothers to allow Athanasius to return to Alexandria as bishop and to allow some other bishops to return to their churches as well. So Athanasius goes back. There was great joy among many when Athanasius returned, but his enemies were angry, so violence broke out between the two sides. Now Constantius, again, who was an Arian, sent a bishop from modern-day Turkey who was also an Arian, his name was Gregory, he sends him down to Alexandria to be bishop instead of Athanasius. So you see how, I mean, the tension here is great. So you have Athanasius, who's orthodox in his teaching, Constantius, uh, the wicked emperor who Athanasius actually referred to as an antichrist, sends another Arian down there, another heretic, to be the bishop of the church there in Alexandria. So this brought about greater violence So Athanasius fled with his friends to Rome, and he was safe there because of the fact that Constans, who was peaceful with him, ruled over that area. You can click on to the next one, and I'll just show this to you here. So to your left, the green section, that's where Constantine II was ruling. And in the middle, that's where Constans was ruling, and that would be Rome, would be in that area. And then over the yellow section, that there is where Constantius is ruling over in the east, and again, that's where Constantinople was. That's where Alexandria was, so this would always cause problems. If a different brother had the east, it wouldn't be this way with Athanasius, but because he's under the rule of Constantius, you always have this conflict. And now, here's an important point to consider when we consider this history here. As you can see, unlike before Constantine, we see now that the state has a lot of involvement in trying to control the affairs of the church. From Nicaea onward, and this is why 325 is a really important date in history, from Nicaea onward, the free church situation becomes the minority. Before the state often persecuted the church. Now the state is involved in its doctrinal disputes and controversies. And we'll see a lot of complications as we go on in history. A lot of politics is involved with the issues in the church. That's really different for us, in, at least in our lifetimes, in the United States, because we've always lived in a free church situation. There's historical reasons for that, of course. Um, the state has never been involved in our doctrinal disputes and church affairs, Now, we got a little bit of a taste of that during the COVID-19 years in some states where the government tried to get its tentacles in and control the churches, and I think as time goes on, you're going to see more of that, but sometimes we can look back at this and shake our heads like, what were these guys doing? Well, it's easy for us to do that because we haven't lived in that circumstance, but they did. This is the situation in God's providence that men like Athanasius found themselves in, and so they had to deal with those issues. Well, by the year A.D. 346, Constantine II had already died, but Constans threatened Constantius with war if he did not allow Athanasius to return to Alexandria. So he allows him to return again. Upon his return, he was met by a large, joyful crowd about 100 miles outside the city, and so he comes back in, and after some peaceful years, Constans dies in 350. And so after some different situations here, now you got two brothers dead, Constantine II and Constans are both dead. So Constantius becomes the one and only emperor over all the Roman Empire. Again, that would not be good news for someone like Athanasius because he is a full-fledged Arian, and so he doesn't like Athanasius. He doesn't like Athanasius not only because he's Orthodox, while Constantius is an Arian, he also hates Athanasius because – he was forced to allow him to return before. So now he just has it out for Athanasius. Constantius ordered two meetings to persuade bishops throughout the Western Empire to sign a paper against Athanasius and against the conclusions concerning Christ that were come to at the Council of Nicaea. Now, what's interesting about this is is this was mainly a controversy in the East. In the West, most of the bishops agreed with the Council of Nicaea. They were orthodox. But in the East, this was more of a controversy. Most Western bishops agreed with Nicaea, so those who refused to sign this paper were imprisoned or exiled by Constantius. After obtaining enough signatures, though, the emperor sent men to Alexandria to capture Athanasius. So now on February 8th, in the year 356, a general... With about 5,000 soldiers surrounded the largest church building in the city of Alexandria where Athanasius was leading an evening service. So now think about this. You got the evening service going on. There's 5,000 soldiers surrounding the church building. What Athanasius does is he has one of his deacons read Psalm 136. And if you remember that psalm, that's a psalm of praise to God, praising God for his creation and praising God for redeeming his people, Israel, and going on. And at the end of each verse, it says, for his mercy endureth forever. Praise God who made the lights. For his mercy endures. Every single verse ends, for his mercy endures forever. So the deacon would read the verse, and then the congregation would respond with, for his mercy endures forever. So that's what the church is doing while they're surrounded by this group of 5,000 soldiers. And you think about this, this is really interesting, because... That psalm praises God for judging the Egyptians and Pharaoh at the Red Sea and for saving Israel. Remember now, these are Christians in Egypt. So just put yourself in their situation where before you had Pharaoh and his people were at war with God. And now you have God's called out people there centuries later in Egypt reading Psalm 136 and standing for the truth against these wicked soldiers. Uh, Just put yourself in their context. That's quite an amazing situation that God brought about there. Just when they finished reading the psalm, the soldiers broke down the doors and entered with swords. Some friends of Athanasius drug him out between the soldiers, and the soldiers didn't even notice. They wanted Athanasius. Athanasius escaped. He actually wanted to stay to protect those who were in the congregation, but his friends drug him out of there. Athanasius then went into hiding in the desert. You can click on to the next one. He traveled the deserts of Upper Egypt, and that would be there at Upper Egypt, hiding. And he would travel, and friends would move him from place to place to avoid the guards of the emperors. Now, he didn't have a tracking device in those days. He didn't have an iPhone on it. He didn't have an iWatch. So it was a little bit harder for them to keep track of where he was. So They didn't have satellites to beam in and stuff. So you kind of, when you think about that, You think about persecution, sometimes think it would have been maybe nicer back then than to (laughs) live. Yeah, good point.
1: Good
0: point. Yep. Well, about five years later, in AD three sixty one, Constantius died. And his nephew Julian becomes the emperor. Now I don't know if you remember, who remember just raised hand? Do you remember when we talked about Julian before? We were talking about the emperors? Okay, Julian now was Constantius' nephew. Julian was raised in a Christian atmosphere. But as a young man, Julian, he rejected the Christian faith, converted to neo- Neoplatonism. And his goal was to bring the Roman Empire back under paganism. And we talked about how he had a very sophisticated plan of how to do this with education and jobs and just wanted to completely remove uh, the Christian influence from the Roman Empire. We talked about He wrote a book also against the Christians called Against the Galileans. He's the emperor member who died after being emperor for about two years in the war. And it said that his last words were, you have conquered, O Galilean. That was uh, Julian. But Julian actually... What's interesting is he allowed the Christian bishops to return to their cities thinking that they would all argue with each other and that this would weaken the church. So it's good for Athanasius because now he can go back, but Julian thinks uh, this is going to just make the, the Christians a lot weaker. Well, Julian had a few problems, though, with Athanasius. Three things. Number one, Athanasius would always stand on his convictions even if it meant disobedience to the emperor. Secondly, Athanasius actually helped to unite and strengthen the church. So Julian's plan backfired. And then third, Athanasius was said to have persuaded the wives of important non-Christian citizens to become Christians. And this, again, this angered Julian. Julian, you remember, he was the last of the non-Christian emperors. He was always referred to in history by the Christians as Julian the Apostate. And Julian eventually ordered Athanasius to leave Egypt completely. He didn't do that, but he hid with his friends once again in the upper Egyptian desert. So how many times now has he gone through exile? Again and again and again. But he just continues to remain steadfast. Now you can click on the next one. I don't know if you've ever seen these children's books. They have all these ones they write about, uh, Athanasius and uh, John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards and so forth. Well, there's a neat story in there and you can read about it in history as well. And I think the, the kids kind of like this story. But during this time when he's in exile in the, in the deserts, the story goes that he's on a boat in the Nile as he's moving from place to place. He's on the Nile River in a boat, and he's there with some monks, and he catches a boat behind them with Roman soldiers on it. So what they do is, is they turn the boat around, and they start going towards the Roman soldiers. And as they're going past the soldiers on the boat, the soldiers say, one of the soldiers says, have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius, he has a towel over his head, and Athanasius says, he's not far from here. <laughs> and they just keep on going up the river, and that was it. So kind of interesting story. But they would come so close, but they weren't able to get him. And they didn't know what he looked like. They didn't have pictures. So yeah, they couldn't necessarily search the boat and say, this is the guy. After Julian's death, though, in 363, Athanasius went back to Alexandria once again. Now, we have some different situations coming up with the emperors, and you can click on to the next one. The next emperor was Emperor Jovian. He actually liked Athanasius, but it wasn't long until he died. And then you have two other emperors come up again, and it's divided once again between the east and the west. You can click on to the next one. The emperor in the west would be uh, Valentinian, uh, 321 to 375. He lived. And then you can click on to the next one. In the east, you had the emperor Valens. And he lived between 328 and 378. And again, he's the important one we want to focus on here because he ruled where Alexandria was, where Athanasius was ministering. And what's really important about Valens is, again, he was an Arian. Valens was the last emperor that was a heretical Arian, the last one. He ordered all bishops who had been exiled by Constantius to be exiled again. Well, the Christians in Alexandria sent a letter to Valens saying that Athanasius had Jovian's permission to stay. Athanasius, though, by now was smart enough to realize he he knew what was going to happen. So Athanasius left secretly to go into hiding. And it was right on time because afterward the church was attacked by imperial soldiers once again who were looking for Athanasius. Some think that he went and was hiding in a family tomb at this time. Those tombs were bigger then, but we don't know for sure. Four months after this, Valens just gave up on Athanasius. He had other more important issues he thought to concern himself with, so he allowed Athanasius to keep his place, and again, he was the last Arian emperor that Athanasius would have to deal with. Athanasius then spent his last years of life working as a bishop and finishing his writings in peace, and then he died in the year A.D. 373. His most important writings were these. Number one, the incarnation of the Lagos. Number two, orations against the Arians. And then three, letters to Serapion. In these letters, Athanasius answered important questions about the Holy Spirit that many had at that time, many theological questions. And he showed from Scripture that all three persons of the Trinity are equally God, and he gave us some of the most important writings in church history concerning the Holy Spirit and the teaching of Scripture concerning the holy Spirit and then another important writing his thirty ninth festal letter in it he gives us a list of the canon of the New testament same twenty seven books that we have in the New Testament today. Some facts about Athanasius he was both loved and hated during his lifetime. He was forced out of his church. Five times. So out of his 45 years as a bishop, 17 of those years were in exile. And the phrase became popular during his life, Athanasius Contramundum. In Latin, it means Athanasius against the world. At times, he seemed to be fighting all alone. But because of his strong stand, so much good uh, took place. Edward Gibbon the historian wrote this about Athanasius that he gave us an example of quote what effect may be produced or what obstacles may be surmounted by the force of a single mind when it is inflexibly applied to the pursuit of a single object the immortal name of Athanasius will never be separated from the catholic doctrine of the trinity in whose defense he consecrated every moment in every faculty of his being and then finally nick needham says this quote together with his unfaltering devotion to the deity of christ athanasius combined high moral courage a quick thinking mind a sparkling sense of humor and a broad-minded tolerance of many theological differences among all who were united with him in the struggle against the arians And so, this is the man in God's providence that was used to uh, really go against Arianism. And uh, as we see, that he set a good example for standing strong and for being theologically accurate uh, on teachings such as the deity of Christ, the Holy Spirit really, what we call the doctrine of the, the Trinity. Before we move on, any questions, any comments concerning Athanasius? All right. absolutely you know one of the things i was thinking now is and i don't know how things will go in god's providence but when you think of when you examine our own situation how the government wants to try to really control churches now what's one means that they can try to use to do that well you could think of another heresy affirming churches you know because then you can just label a certain group that doesn't apostatize as well those are the non-affirming churches they're not really the real christians uh, they they're not really the loving people. They're not really true followers of Jesus, and also you know the the, the the translation of the Bible was corrupted in English in 1946, and it was just all to create homophobia. And you know, no one ever believed this before. I, that's that's not really theologically difficult to battle against. But, you know, the government doesn't care about that. They don't care about what's true or not concerning that issue. So that's one way that th- you could think of that they could try to get in in control in the future, that if you don't m- marry these people, you're out, you know. So we do face similar circumstances, but they just might take on a little bit of a different form uh, when, you, when you just think about our own context. And why something like this is really important because when we look back, we can see, well, look at the example they set in their day, dealing with the corrupt emperors and so forth that they were dealing with so okay, and at times a mixture at times decent emperors, at times bad emperors, and you know w- we go through that that's the way politics is a lot of times. You might have decent people in power, you might have those who are wicked and evil. Well, let's talk then about the aftermath of Nicaea. You can click onto the next one and we'll look here. Now, remember, Athanasius was at the council and a lot of these controversies that took place after the council was during the life of Athanasius that we went through. The council of Nicaea did not settle the Arian controversy, nor did it restore peace and unity to the eastern churches. The controversy would be strong for about another 50 years. And three different parties came out of the council of Nicaea. Let me just talk to you about them. Number one, you have the Orthodox Party, also known as the Nicene Party. Those were the people whose theology was contained in the Creed of Nicaea. If you remember last time I read you that creed, that statement that came out of Nicaea, they believed that the son was equal with the father in his divine nature. And just so you know, in the West, most bishops agreed with this. In the East, this was a small party. Number two, the Arian party, those who believed along with Arius that the Sun was a created being. In the east, this was also a smaller party, but it was there and they had a lot of influence. And then number three, you had the originist party, uh, oftentimes referred to by their enemies or referred to in some history books as semi-Arians. This was what the majority of the eastern bishops were because they accepted the traditional... Eastern theology of origin, who we talked about before, back in the 200s. He believed, and they believed, that the Son was uncreated, that he was divine, that he was eternally begotten from the Father's essence. But they also believed that the Son was inferior to the Father in his his divine nature. In other words, he was a degree less divine than the Father was. So, that was the major party in the East. Now, there was confusion in the language, in the theological language that caused a lot of controversy. Let me explain that. If you remember we talked about last time, the Niceneans taught that Christ was, in the language they used, homoousios with the Father. Christ was homoousios with the Father, meaning both the Father and the Son were of the same usia. That means of the same nature, of the same essence. Well, there's a problem here. The Sabellians, who were heretics that we talked about previously, before, they also used this same word in their teaching. But they didn't use it just to say that the father and the son were of the same essence or nature. They used it to say they were the same person. So the father came to earth as a man. And that was a problem because the originists... Thought that the Niceneans meant the same thing as the Sabalians by using this word. And they, they hated the Sabellian heresy. Some Niceneans were Sabellians, but most were not. So the Origenists often went along with the Arians in their battle against the Niceneans because of that confusion in the way that that term was used. Now there is more confusion. The Niceneans thought that the originists were Arians. Because they believed that the son was inferior to the father, even though they believed he was uncreated, because they believed he was inferior to the father, the Niceneans believed that the originists were not much better than the Arians. So the result was this. The Arians were able to set the Niceneans and the originists against each other for 50 years. Although the originists accepted the Council of Nicaea at the time of the council and the creed, they later doubted what they had done, and they regretted it. During such a time, the Arians were able to build up their strength, and they had a resurgence after Nicaea, and they gained a lot of people to their side. Eventually, the Nicene view was not the primary view in the east. You can click on in the next one. The famous church father, Jerome said the world awoke and was shocked to find itself Arian. So you think about that. We're talking about a damnable heresy, and it had spread so much. Arius himself began to fade away from the scene, and he actually died in 336, 11 years after the council of Nicaea. A different man by the name of Eusebius, Eusebius of Nicomedia in Asia Minor, became the leader of the Arians. Now, this is not the Eusebius who wrote the famous church history. The Eusebius, who I oftentimes quote, who, who was he was Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote that famous church history, he was actually an originist. But this Eusebius of Nicomedia, he was a different man. He became a leader amongst the Arians. Arius eventually died in 336, and he, he died in a very unpleasant way. And let me just read you the account here that's given from this uh, 2,000 years of Christ's power. Just bear with me a moment as I read the account. At that time, the year 336, Alexander presided over the church in Constantinople. He was a devout and godly bishop, qualities he clearly proved by his conflict with Arius. When Arius arrived in the city, the people divided into two factions— and the city was thrown into confusion. Some insisted that the creed of Nicaea must be obeyed. Others argued that Arius's views were in harmony with reason. This forced Alexander into grave difficulties, especially since Eusebius of Nicomedia had violently threatened to have Alexander instantly deposed unless he admitted Arius and his disciples to Holy Communion. At his wit's end, Alexander said farewell to the resources of human wisdom, And took refuge in God, devoting himself to continual fasting and ceaseless praying. Without telling anyone, he shut himself up in the church, called peace, went up to the altar, and prostrated himself beneath the communion table, where he poured forth his fervent prayers with weeping. He did this without ceasing for many nights and days. And he received from God what he so earnestly sought, for this was his prayer— If Arius' views are right, may I not be allowed to see the day appointed by the emperor for discussing them. But if I myself hold the true faith, may Arius suffer the penalty his ungodliness deserves as the author of these evils. It was Saturday, and Arius was expecting to take communion with the church on the following day. But divine vengeance overtook his daring crimes. As he left the imperial palace, attended by a mob of Eusebius' followers like guards, he paraded proudly through the city, the center of attention. But as he approached the place called Constantine's Market, at one and the same time the terrors of convictions attacked his conscience and a violent seizure attacked his bowels. As he asked if there was somewhere nearby where he could relieve himself and someone directed him to the back of the market, There he fainted, and his bowels came spilling out of his backside. Together with streams of blood, parts of his spleen and liver poured out in the bloody flow. He died almost instantly. People in Constantinople still point out where this calamity happened, behind the meat market in the colonnade. This constant pointing out of the place has preserved a perpetual memorial of this extraordinary death. The disaster filled with dread and alarm, the party of Eusebius of Nicomedia, and the news spread quickly through the city and indeed the whole world. The emperor, growing more earnest in Christianity, confessed that God had vindicated the creed of Nicaea and rejoiced at what had happened. So there's how Arius died, and he lost a lot of influence by this time. He was kind of a a non-factor anymore. Now... Eusebius of Nicomedia had a lot of influence in Constantine's court, and he eventually became bishop in 339 of Constantinople. So here you have the bishop of Constantinople, a very influential city, is an Arian. He get, he had got Arius recalled from exile back in 328 before he died, and he was the man behind the lie that Athanasius was trying to keep wheat from being uh, shipped over to uh, Constantinople. I talked about that before. The Eastern bishops called a council in 341 in Antioch where a new creed was drawn up which left out the word homoousios, of the same essence, and used a different word that was just one letter different, homoiousios which means of a similar essence. The Arians could agree with this. The Nicenes could not. Now there was persecution then that took place. Let me just give you four examples of this. Number one, Hilary of Portiers, who lived between 315 and 368, he's sometimes referred to as the Athanasius of the West. He was a bishop in western France, banished to Asia Minor in 356. While he was there, he wrote a book called On the Trinity and wrote Orthodox hymns in response to the hymns that were written by the heretical Arians. But he was exiled. Secondly, the bishop of Rome, who was Liberius, was exiled in northern Greece. But in his exile, he gave in to the pressure, and he signed an Arian statement of faith. Number three, Hosius of Cordova was a former counselor to Constantine. He was imprisoned and tortured at the age of 100. He gave in under the torture and signed an Arian statement of faith. He died the next year, but on his deathbed, he repented and confessed the deity of Christ before dying. And then finally, there's the account of the four group of virgin women. These women gathered for prayer in a graveyard on the Lord's Day because the Arians had taken over the church buildings. They were seized by troops who threatened to throw them into fire unless they converted to Arianism. The women refused, so the soldiers stripped off their clothes and beat their faces until their faces were all bloody. But they would not compromise. They remained steadfast. This all happened during the reign of Constantius. You can see why Athanasius referred to Constantius as an Antichrist. There's some practical points here, and then we'll finish up. Number one, just from what we've gone through today, the church, both east and west, did not hold... You can see that all throughout this controversy. They did not hold to the Roman Catholic view today concerning the Bishop of Rome. I mean, there was no one ecumenical council with the authority of the Bishop of Rome and saying, this is what must be believed by all the churches. That simply did not exist. The Bishop of Rome had a lot of influence, but you could see even he was exiled and forced to sign an Arian statement of faith. So... Again, Roman Catholic apologists often try to read their doctrine back into church history. In all honesty, it's simply not there. Number two, some cults today will accuse us of believing the way that we do about Christ because they'll say it was forced on us and forced on others after the Council of Nicaea. But that is simply not true, as you can just see from this history. It is not as if the results of Nicaea were forced on everybody. The Nicaeans actually became a persecuted group by the Arians. We see the Arians were strongly trying to force this upon people who believe correctly about Christ. And then finally, number three, many Orthodox believers we see at this time stood strong. Think about it. The power of the gathered church at one council excommunicated, excommunicated Athanasius as an enemy of the faith, yet he stood strong on the truth of Scripture. So how was Arianism eventually defeated? But well, Lord willing, we'll see that next time. Any last questions or comments as we finish up here? Yes, Howard. In a word of prayer, let us pray. Father, we thank you that as you have seen fit, you have preserved this history for us so that we could look back, be encouraged, be challenged, be corrected at times as we see the example of others. And we thank you of how you used others in the past, both men and women, to stand strong. And we thank you that by your grace, That you have given us, granted to us, repentance and faith to believe the gospel, to submit to your word concerning who Christ really is. And that we inherited uh, this body of faith, this body of doctrine concerning who you are and who our Lord Jesus Christ is. We read in scripture about how we would be persecuted and also how there would be false teachers in the church. And we see here that the battle never ends. It just never ended since the time of the New Testament. All throughout these centuries, there are always spiritual battles. We pray that in our day that you would help us to stand strong on the truth of your word in whatever circumstances that you have so chosen to have us in. Please use this now for your glory. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.